Welcome everyone to the Deep Dive, the podcast that skips small talk and goes straight for the concepts that shape our thinking and behavior. In this podcast, cold expertise is defenestrated as warm philosophy is enthroned in an attempt to explore the field in which we're all scientists looking for answers, living well. Hello world, welcome to another episode of The Deep Dive with Eyal Shai. Today I'm joined by David McKeever. Hi David. Hi Al. Hi Eyal. Um, immediately messed up your name. Um, <laughs> no problem. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Um, and what will we be discussing today, roughly? So the theme that I sort of want to talk about today is roughly headlined as taking things seriously. Um, it's part of sort of a life project I've been going on for a couple of years where um, essentially at some point I decided that uh, I, I was kind of miserable and that seemed like a problem and I should fix that. Um, and this wasn't my original frame, but I think um, there's a question that goes around from time to time of like, uh, if you're so smart, why aren't you happy? And um, uh, that's increasingly how I think of this. It's essentially the trying to turn your intelligence and like normal practical problem skills to the problem of like actually living a good life and actually being and being happy. That's great, and you know it's right up this podcast's alley. Um, yeah, how would you like to begin your story? I mean, I would love to get an insight, and I know that you're a, a talented writer. How would you describe the years where you are not happy, though you know you're smart? Um, so can you take us on a little tour of what it looks like from the inside? Sure. So um, my background is software development, um, and I I still sort of morally think of myself as a software developer, despite the fact, despite the fact that I'm not actually writing anything, any code at the moment at all. Um, um, and... and I kind of drifted into this. Um, it's, I think I was sort of living my life very much of, and still to some degree live my life this way of like doing what makes sense at the time. Um, and um, so I started out uh, with an attempt of becoming a physicist and I did mathematics with physics at university, which then sort of slided into mathematics and I got to the end and I became a software developer because essentially what else could I do? Um, uh, I mean, I could have gone into academia, but that didn't work for other, for other reasons. And so I kept essentially like taking the opportunities opportunities in front of me, and everything was basically fine. Like I was, um, um, I had a decent job. I had like reasonably good social life. Like not, nothing was badly wrong, but um, but also nothing was particularly good. I sort of spent the period. Um, uh, so to give to give you a timeline, um, essentially, like I quit my normal software development and career back in 2015, um, when I had moved country to work at Google. Um, after about six months, I was just like, "Wow, this is the worst. I hate this," um, <laughs> and um, and just quit. <clears throat> and so then, sort of started working on some interesting software side projects, and um, was doing a. Now, which I sent, uh, turned one of into an attempt to do a PhD, which I've now 
technically I'm on, I, I have suspended my PhD rather than quit my PhD, but in practice, I've probably quit my PhD. Um, uh, I mean, I was going to quit my PhD, but then they persuaded me to put it on suspension anyway. Um, and so it was during like the first or second year of my PhD where I just sort of looked at my life and I was just like, man, I'm really unhappy with all of this. Like the, um, this isn't, this is sort of where I've ended up rather than where I've chosen to be. And I clearly don't feel like this is where I want to be. And I should, um, no, I, I should essentially, um, see what's up with that and try and, and try and fix that. So I did what any self-respecting nerd would do, which is that, um, I read a million books on the subject, um, and, uh, started trying to figure things out. This isn't quite true. I did, um, I, I did see a therapist for a bit. Um, and what I largely concluded was that, um, my ther I was smarter than my therapist and I was spending the entire session essentially like trying to bring her up to speed and, after about six sessions, I was like, you know what? This is stuff that I could do much better on my own than um, than sort of part part like and and all, all credit to her. Like, I think it just wasn't actually a good therapist client fit. I think like she was probably a very good therapist for the right sort of person, but I think she essentially wasn't used to um, like slightly neurodivergent nerds um, and. Um, uh, and so started reading up a lot of the therapy literature. Um, I've since sort of branched out more into philosophy as well. Um, and a whole bunch of, of like more woo-ish self-help books, which are often really interesting sources of insights. They're terrible, but they're often really interesting. Um, um I just try and synthesize it into like a good toolkit for, um, no, for doing, get, for getting better at my life. Um, but, but it all kind of starts with like the core insight of, um, you're allowed to treat your life as a project with interesting problems that you could think about and then try to solve. Yeah. So I want us, before we go on to actually learn about the kind of techniques and methods that you've added to Arsenal in your attempt to live well, um, maybe a little bit, uh, more of a backstory, like how do you view yourself uh, emotionally let's say growing up like what is the base mood do you have a, a base mood or some mood that is kind of the default for you so was that a continuation of of yourself when you were um in the first year of of your studies whenever the the crisis happened um where were you emotionally was it that you were finding yourself being sad or um, or not seeing much of a future or what did it feel like? I would describe myself as depressed more than sad. It was um, like, it, it wasn't that I was overwhelmed with negative emotions. It was that there was a distinct lack of positive emotions. Um, it's um, a lot of my conception of depression comes from the philosopher uh, Matthew Radcliffe. Um, and he talks about depression as essentially comprised of what he calls existential feelings, um, which he uses um, as a contrast to intentional feelings, um, which are feelings about something. Um, and sort of ex existential feelings are things that 
feelings that constitute your experience of the world and sort of like um, the his classic example is like hope versus hopelessness. Um, like um, hope is about something, like you hope for a particular thing, um, while hopelessness isn't about something. It's, and it's, um, it's, and it's more than like a lack of hope. It is a feeling that hope is impossible. Um, so my personal experience of depression is that it's very much constituted by this sort of like, uh, these feelings of like, not just the absence of, of positive feelings, but, um, like that such positive feelings are impossible. Um, uh, and, um, I'm lucky in that, like one of the things that tends to stay with me, um, even when depressed is like some level of interest in things. Um, although I'm increasingly finding the limitations of that. Um, but, um, but it, so, but so like, it's, um, it wasn't, so yeah, I, I guess like, it wasn't just that I was, it wasn't that I was unhappy in the sense that like everything felt terrible. It was unhappy in the sense that like happiness felt hard to impossible to experience. Yeah, I can, I can sympathize with that. I mean, I went through a period of depression in my teenage years and I think it was a, a different shade of depression, which is to be expected because no two people are mm -hmm. the same. So for me, I think it was, um, marked by by sadness or what I interpreted mm -hmm. as sadness but I have kind of my own little theory of depression and of other things that it is overwhelming in the sense not that you're bombarded with feelings all the time but a sense mm -hmm. that you're really not sure what your next move in the world mm -hmm. should be so you're in a sense paralyzed um, obviously you lack motivation in that mm -hmm. in that um, context and then this type of paralysis and and apathy almost can then be interpreted as as chronic sadness or chronic mm -hmm. something so people may misinterpret this overwhelm paralysis and attach it to an emotion but i think it's it's a lot like you say it's not necessarily a, an emotional thing mm -hmm. um yeah, so just on a side note, that's interesting that it's it's connecting there. Um, yeah, so I, I'd really like to to hear from you. What were some of the first building blocks that maybe started falling into uh, place for you in this new project that you were under, undertaking? Were you, well, maybe we should start. Were you explicitly thinking about a concept like living well or... Or what was the what was the name of the project? Um, I don't know that I had a, I ever had a name of the um, a, a single coherent name of the project. Like I think it's it's had various labels over the years, but um, a um, I think the sort of the starting point was more like how to be happy, um, how to sort of figure out your own my own emotional state. Um, there, um, and a sort of a project that I've, um, I've attached a, a project name that I've sort of used somewhat tongue in cheekly over the, over the years, but like, I still think is pretty sound is essentially how to think your way out of depression. Um, 
Yeah, so that's interesting. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe, maybe. well, I just have to hear that spoiler. Can you think your way out of it? Um, I think that you, you cannot purely think your way out of depression. Like you have to, you have to act to some degree as well. Um, but I think that, um, there's, they're good. I think short, short, short answer. Yes. Long answer. It's complicated. Um, <laughs> and the starting point I have for a lot of this is that, um, a lot of people conceptualize depression as like a very thinky experience. Um, it's you, you talked about, um, how depression is sort of paralysis, um, how it's, it's a lack of knowing what to do next. Um, and I think for a lot of people, the, um, the key experience of that is basically getting into these analysis paralysis loops where like you're constantly ruminating, you have these thought cycles. Um, and so they frame the problem as, um, I need to think less and I need to sort of feel mm. and do things and so on and so forth. And like, this is a perfectly valid way of conceptualizing that if that works for you, great. Um, but my sort of feeling on the subject is that the thinking that they are describing as depressed as like the central example of their depression is, it's just, it's, it's really bad thinking, right? Like just take it, take it on its, on its merits as a thought process is kind of, it's kind of bad. Um, and so if you, if you can start from a process of trying to, um, be, more to think think more competently to think more constructively um and for example to get interested in the process to uh, in the experience of depression itself um it's like one of the more useful things um i got out of the work from matthew ratcliffe um his book experiences of depression is that it gave me a set of conceptual tools to um treat depression as like a valid a valid object of study in, in its own life own right and um and so rather than essentially like thinking in loops about how uh, life is terrible and i can't fix that um instead start thinking oh there's this big sort of mental object called depression what happens if i just look really hard at that mm. um and and you sort of i think one one of my interesting differences from um a lot of other people who work in the space is that um i had had this decade of experience in like practical problem solving in the context of software um and also was reasonably good at not falling into the trap that other people often fall into I mean, I fall into it as well, but like I'm um, of going, I understand this domain. Therefore, this other domain must be exactly like the domain that I already understand. And I think skill transfer between domains is hard. And most people's approach is to either 
not do it and basically go, okay, I will abandon all of my like cognitive tools that I've developed in this other domain and I'll treat this new domain from scratch or we'll, or we'll try and sort of like shoehorn the new domain into, um, fit into sort of fitting exactly the mold that they're used to. Um, and neither of those really work, but I think if you can do skill transfer and if you can sort of take like an existing practical problem solving toolkit, um, and carefully port it over to the, um, new environment in a way that sort of adapt, adapts well to, to the changes, um, then you, a lot of interesting things emerge. And, um, and so I think treating, you can think, yeah, I guess what I'm saying is you can think your way out of depression, but the thought process has to be practical rather than abstract and practical thought processes inevitably lead to action. Yeah, I, I, I really like that. I mean, so first of all, I just want to point out that in my life, I'm at a place and I think a lot of humanity is in a place where you find that embodied practices that um, there is maybe more openness to doing things with the body today. And it turns mm -hmm. out that moving in certain ways, even in terms of, of skill transfer, it turns mm -hmm. out that you can learn to use your body in a certain way, whether it's Tai Chi or, or um, mm -hmm. a martial art. And even, you know, these metaphors are created in the head that can get you out of ruts that are totally in the domain of thinking. So mm -hmm. there's, I'm really happy to see uh, some developments over in that area. And also to touch on your point of overthinking, I always hated the maxim that ignorance is bliss. I, mm -hmm. you know, I, I would never want to lose 50 points of IQ and think <laughs> less and think that this would make me somehow um, happier, I think is ridiculous. I think mm -hmm. that you are a dollar and therefore maybe you don't notice a lot of the things that uh, bug sensitive people. Mm -hmm. Because I think intelligence, in a sense, is very closely related to, to sensitivity, in a sense. Just seeing nuances and working with them and so on. And I always hated this maxim. And much like you, I think, it's, it just really matters what you think about. If you have the kind of brain power um, that you are currently misusing and you use for rumination, of course, that feels terrible. But mm -hmm. imagine applying this to the to the right sort of thinking. Uh, you could advance yourself and humanity. Um, so those so that's a really interesting thing which you just pointed out. This switch and I'm open to hear from you what you think how the switch can be made from just one mode of thinking in the domain of. Um, yeah, just like being daydreaming about the future or or rumination um, and all that into something different and what that different thing could be for you. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, in terms of how to make the switch, uh, there are two two possible or two, two at least two parts of that. Um, the one of them is you mentioned embodied practices and um a lot of where i 
started figuring things out with was um, reading up a bit on um, focusing, which is by a therapist slash philosopher named um, Gendlin, um, which uh, is essentially like starts from a process of paying attention to your body and sort of uh, getting more in touch with um, like an intuitive physical sense. Um, and, um, and in particular, uh, paying attention to whether something feels right and um, how that connects up with your sort of emotional landscape. And so I think that sort of provides one anchor point for grounding a thought process. Um, and if you are not anchored in like how the thoughts actually connect up to your emotions, then um, you're essentially speculating without information, right? It's um, it's about as useful as coming into um, a new situation going, right, I know exactly what to do. I don't need to ask any of you any questions. Um, you're just going to do things my way and uh, and everything will be great. And <laughs> like, um, and the other thing is, I think, um, grounding fa fairly immediately in... Um, in things that you can actually do. Um, I think the, one of my, um, it's both a failing and a power, um, is that um, I, I get bored fairly quickly if I cannot see an actual outcome of the thing that I'm doing. And, um, and, this is some major limitations on what I'm actually capable of doing as a result. And it's not, it's, it's far from a positive feature, but, um, but it does mean that I'm not going to get stuck ruminating in the long thought process mm. because um, at some point I'm just going to get bored of the thought process. Um, and so what I have very much learned as a, I think generically useful habit, even without this limitation is to, try to keep like roughly one step away from something I would actually do with the thought. And uh, writing about it is often that one step. Um, so I do a lot of public writing. I can highly recommend public writing as a practice. Um, and I think one of the big step changes in my progress happened in early 2020 when um, uh, I started a daily writing practice on my notebook blog, which just allowed me to get a lot of thoughts about this out of my head and sort of really started a conversation with the world about some of the ways I think about this and helped me articulate it a lot of that. Um, so um, I guess, yeah, one answer to how to stop um, unproductive thoughts loops in this pro in this space is just to write about it in public in a way that feels useful to, it feels like it would be useful to communicate to other people. Um, I think that doesn't work for many, many people because I think that there's often like a huge amount of anxiety tied up with public writing. Um, I can recommend pseudonymous uh, Twitter accounts as like way, a way around that and, I, and um, potentially pseudonymous blogs. Um, but um I do think 
starting to there's um <clears throat> there's a thing there's a thing in general where your thought processes are always better when you're articulating them to someone else um and you can do this a little bit with like well, i mean programming we've got the idea of a rubber duck debugging which is that you take rubber duck and you explain your thoughts to them and you ask the rubber duck a, que- uh, rubber duck <laughs> a question and getting to the point where you can ask the rubber duck a question articulately um uh is often enough to solve the problem but uh but real people work much better than ducks and well if they're so, good listeners <laughs> they can be bringing no, their own baggage which they just can't hold themselves back from sharing with you but yeah well this is this, well this is why writing is good um yeah it's um because you can write in public and nobody can interrupt you during the writing process and yes you will sometimes get bad commenters but um but like by and large sharing your thoughts with the world makes those thoughts better even if no one ever comments on it and largely the comments are good and supportive um i mean enabling comments on the blog is usually a mistake but like comments on twitter or wherever nice that's a good recommendation yeah for me i'm also trying because i i share that history of depression with you then i'm reflecting on what got me out of it and i think eventually a lot of it was getting to a point where i found this um just place where i can be easier on myself mm-hmm. as a first mm-hmm. step where you know i would be up all night and having to do something in the morning but mm-hmm. you're there and of course if you're thinking about how you should have been asleep by now and all that that just mm-hmm. exacerbates the whole thing and you get more desperate to fall asleep the, the less you're able to fall asleep creates this loop so i for me have developed this concept of just um i have this image of me just in outer space just letting radiation come through me you know like not mm-hmm. trying to protect myself not trying to put up this shell around mm-hmm. me or anything like that but just completely letting go and then just saying even though last night i didn't sleep amazing life goes on right life mm-hmm. goes on and i think that's a that's a good a good technique to maybe do it use some visualization where you there's no there's no um tonus in your muscles whatsoever mm-hmm. um and then another thing like for me i started from ruminations to move into dialectic which is an mm-hmm. art and and a fun art and like you i can employ um this um curiosity that i have so that it naturally leads me to to delve deeper into that and building a model of the world with some of the interesting concepts that matters to us most and once you find something that you're t- truly curious about and interested in you will see that your attention shifts there mm-hmm. because that is a, a very powerful thing to to follow our curiosity so mm-hmm. I'm wondering if if that is something that you noticed in yourself and I guess from what I understand it was this whole big project of actually stepping out of depression um mm-hmm. that you were thinking about but what was the method there what were you trying to address um so I think one big difference in our experiences of depression I think are that my depression was less constituted by 
lots of negative emotions. Like I, I've, I very rarely have negative self-talk. Um, mm. It's um, so I agree that if you are regularly beating yourself up, figuring out ways of not doing that is super important. Um, but my problem in general was much more like an absence of positive emotions rather than um, a presence of like intense negative emotions. It's um, uh, much more about uh, no, trying to figure out like low-grade emotional clutter is the way I think about it. Uh, like constantly holding a certain degree of like anxiety and tension, but nothing that sort of ever spikes to a particularly high level. Um, I should say, by the way, that um, depression is far from something I've fixed. Um, it's, uh, uh, I've got sort of an increasingly better toolkit for working with it. Um, and, um, but unfortunately I developed a great deal of that toolkit sort of early 2020. And there's been a little bit going on since then, as you may may be aware mm. and so like um it's sadly my uh m my current emotional toolkit is not quite up to the task of not being depressed during a pandemic um so uh particularly like the last couple of weeks have been quite bad for me um uh as all this news with omicron uh rolls in and just, and so there's a very strong feeling of like oh god not again um and um and this kind of ties into um and that and that one i guess is constituted somewhat by negative emotions but um or possibly negative feelings i'm not sure if they're emotions but um but but either way there it's but so i think this is like one of the important things um that has sort of underlies a lot of my uh, practice. I think I've sort of slightly meandered off your question. I apologize for that, but I'm going to keep talking anyway, um, which, <laughs> uh, which, which is that emotions are about things. And this, this feels like too obvious to say, but um, I think is often missed. And um, very often um, someone, you know, when you sort of experience emotions about negative emotions about something it's easy to treat like the negative emotions as the problem um so um i often use anger as an example for this um like when you get angry at someone you uh will often sort of want to treat it as anger is the problem um and sort of think in terms of okay how can i be less angry how can i calm down but actually like maybe that person is just being a dick to you and maybe being angry is a completely sensible response in this context. And you can choose how to act on that anger. Um, and there are very much more and less productive ways to be angry about, uh, to act angrily. Um, and fear is another example. Um, if a tiger is coming for you, you should be afraid of that tiger. Yep. Um, it's, the problem is very much not afraid that you're afraid. The problem is that there's a tiger there. Um, and so to a certain degree, depression is the sensible and rational response to the pandemic. Um, it's, 
this isn't 100% true. And there are, there are also other sensible and rational responses to the pandemic that don't involve being depressed. But um, to the degree that depression is an experience of not knowing what to do, it felt sort of a feeling of constricted agency. Uh, damn right, your agency is being constricted by the pandemic. Uh, it's there. There is sort of a loss of possibility in the world, which is like one of the principal feelings of depression. Um, so I'm sorry. What was your question exactly? Because as I say, I have wondered off it. No. Well, I, I like I like where where this went. I want to add that. Um, yeah, absolutely. Negative feelings. That's another thing. I'm I'm very ambivalent about hearing. It's more about having the fitting emotions because, as mm. you say, there are those times where it's absolutely fitting that we would be angry or fearful. Mm -hmm. And this is when you want these emotions. That's why they're there because they helped mm -hmm. us come all the way, you know, through hundreds of thousands of years of um, turmoil around us and, and danger. So... Mm -hmm. That's one one thing that should be emphasized that emotions are not necessarily negative. And I think that's a good point you're making about, first of all, um, on two levels, try dealing with emotions. The first is how you react. So maybe put a bigger buffer between the emotion and your action so that you have more freedom there to, mm -hmm. to choose what your action is. And then also think about the emotion itself and make it explicit to yourself in your own mind what is anger good for it is mm -hmm. good for harnessing a lot of energy in a short time span to change things quickly mm -hmm. right and when the time comes once you realize this when anger arises you in situation where this is exactly the thing that's called for you will be happy mm -hmm. to be angry mm -hmm. but if you recognize if you come into a situation and somebody's telling you about a mistake they made a year ago that's irreversible and all that well maybe getting angry at that point is is just not productive you know so thinking about the emotion so that going forward you would be better adapted to dealing uh, with situations so that you do we would have more of a choice in what emotion to allow in you and then also like you said um put a buffer between an emotion and the and the output or the action mm -hmm. from your body um yeah and my question was what were some of the things that you started actually concretely adding to your toolkit uh once <laughs> once the project started um so yeah concretely adding to my toolkit uh so I mentioned focusing as the starting point for a lot of this, um, which as high, high level description is pay attention to your body in order to learn better to work with your intuitive sense of like of things. Um, another thing that I've said, there, there's a lot of stuff that I have added to my toolkit without really properly engaging with the source material, which I always find slightly embarrassing to admit to, but I think is still sort of important to acknowledge the influences of. Um, so like other therapeutic techniques that have been influential to some large degree are um, a sort of Jungian shadow work type things, um, uh, internal family systems and coherence therapy. 
And I'll sort of, I'll briefly summarize each of these. Um, yes, please. Like, yeah, like the idea of sort of the Jungian shadow is that there are parts of yourself that you reject. Um, you've essentially, at some point, usually in childhood, you have learned that this is in some way inappropriate, that this is in some way like bad. Um, uh, and you've sort of essentially tried to cut yourself off from them, but that doesn't work. And instead you've kind of put them in the, in the shadow and like the dark place inside you where you just like lock, lock all the monsters and don't notice and pretend they aren't there. And, um, and as a result, you sort of, you, you become increasingly like less of yourself over time as you like lock more and more things away in the shadow. Um, and there they essentially fester and become the worst versions of themselves because they're sort of dark and resentful and like want to be let out. Um, and anger is a good example of this. I think a lot of people have most of their ability to express anger lurking in the shadow. And mm. you, you particularly see this with people who uh, bottle up all of their anger and um, most of the time pretend not to be angry at all. And then either just like snap sometimes or like don't acknowledge to themselves when they're clearly very angry. Um, and so the, and this is the bit where my sort of <clears throat> my, I have to admit, I haven't read that much young and I haven't read that much of um, the surrounding works. I sort of essentially took the idea of shadow work from various like secondhand sources and ran with it, but learning to, look at these parts of yourselves and sort of acknowledge that you have rejected them um, is one of the things that was very useful to me. Like a, a good um, way, a, 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 sort of a good standard test is essentially like to look at people who you find really irritating or like feel a lot of anger towards or or some other negative emotion where you're just like oh god that person is terrible i hate them and try to figure out ways in which you might secretly want to be them or be like them like they uh, or the ways in which you might resent their behavior because you want to behave in similar ways um, a, a trivial example of this for me is, uh, I get really annoyed by people's behavior on the underground, um, where okay. they're just like, they're, they're just standing around in the way, in, in the way of people They're they're standing in front of the doors. They're not, so we're not, not really looking where they're going. And, um, and so they're just, you're constantly having to maneuver around them. And I'm, I'm aware that a lot of this is because it sure would be nice not having to like constantly monitor my environment, constantly have to actively learn to like not be in the way of people. And now there's just like a bit of me that I really don't feel like I'm allowed to switch off. And like, it sure would be nice not to have to constantly be convenient, but, right. um, uh, and I, currently don't experience that that much because I don't go in the underground very much right now, but, um, but no, that's, I'm that's really interesting. And it's also a cultural thing. So in Israel, Israel is fascinating because, um, there are two very distinct cultures here, mm -hmm. um, along, um, 
ethnic ethnic origins basically so in israel is one of the few places in the world i think where you can drive and you can see um and you can see a, a settlement and another settlement and you'll see like oh this this type of of building and architecture it's definitely jews that are living there and over mm-hmm. here are, are arabs uh muslims mm-hmm. or muslims or um christian and there are many different uh, um, differences between these cultures that are fascinating one of them is driving okay so in some of the arab villages um you go and clearly everything is is less orderly going into um, an arab village you might see cars standing in the middle of the road and somebody talking with their friend on the sidewalk um, mm-hmm. and just take the time for a couple of minutes and uh, they don't seem to care much that you stand behind them okay mm-hmm. um in in other places it's it's a lot more like your mindset where you know for me it's like okay am i in the way am i in the way if i want to talk with someone for two minutes I, i'll make sure mm-hmm. that i pull over and so on and you see very different cultures and it takes a while to understand that uh both are rational both are fine if mm-hmm. all the people around that person is in the same mindset so mm-hmm. you know i can be coming from my culture and be all upset about this happening it's like look at them driving here like that whatever mm-hmm. or i can understand you know what what is the big deal really so mm-hmm. it takes a minute it's like here's this person talking with his friend and like everything is fine by the end of it you know nothing happened not No big deal happened. So why not allow serendipitous hellos on the road? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of nice from, from a different perspective. Um, so this is just an anecdote to, to kind of show that for me, this was a real learning process about culture, about people, and about getting to be more, uh, more of a pluralist and realizing that other people are not doing the same thing that I do, but it's not... drastically worse mm-hmm. and by extension i am making peace with myself which is, seems to be the the purpose of of mm-hmm. the work you're doing there yeah yeah no i i absolutely agree and um one of my sort of idiosyncratic syntheses here is that i tie like Jungian shadow work very tightly to philosophy of ethics um and in particular to um The work of a philosopher uh, obscure educational philosopher named Thomas Green who does a lot of work essentially on how or did a lot of work he's dead now um he um on um moral education and how norms are formed and how we learn our emotional senses of right and wrong and so like the things that go in the shadow are very much the things that you have culturally learned you you Um, are prohibited that you feel guilty guilt or shame about um I would how I would however like push back on a metaethical level where I still think that my that my norms around the London underground are correct um uh, because um ethics is fundamentally like it is a practical subject right it is a thing that you cannot theorize your way you you cannot like treat ethics as purely a theoretical question of right and wrong like your ethics have to be lived and in the context of the London underground your ethics have to be lived in a way that lets people get get from point A to point B and cool. so when so the 
um, the set of norms that sort of work in a small village, for example, um, have a wide variety of expressions because and, and many, many of them are equally valid. Um, but in the context of a very high volume of people in a small in a small space, the set of ethics that allow a level of throughput at which the system works um, is quite tightly constrained. Yep, um, You're totally right. And of course, ethics literally means things pertaining to customs or behaviors, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. and by extension to personality. So, of course, these these. Or behaviors that we have to to act mm-hmm. out eventually, and not just uh, have theoretical, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so I mean, I, I am very much like an ethical pluralist. I uh, I don't think that there is a single objectively correct set of ethics, um, but I think that you do still have to evaluate ethics on the practical level of like what it does in the world and in in a given context and with a given set of aims uh there are it is very much possible for like one set of norms to be strictly better than another um and i acknowledge i yeah i i acknowledge that things are lost and a greater demand is placed on people by trying to follow my sort of norms of the underground that I consider optimal. But uh, I think that the, uh, not to be too Kantian about it, but basically like the system doesn't work if we adopt these norms and uh, trying to, as an individual holds to a set of norms that disrupt the system is in some sense intrinsically unethical. Yeah, well, it it just strikes me as as really funny norms of the underground, where you think mm-hmm. it's something about uh, deep subconscious, but no, it's about the underground. Um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, I, I think <clears throat> I think it is also a deep subconscious thing. Like I I think I I do hold, no, I do hold to like a much higher degree of awareness of the impact of my actions on others than I think I actually like would endorse as. Um, as correct for me, certainly like emotionally healthy for me, but also just correct in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it it comes out particularly strongly on on the underground because here is a situation where my norms are still probably overly strict, but it it very much shows the the level of not caring about this sort of thing that most people fall, or that many people fall to. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's sort of, Oh, how, how can you not care about this? Even in this situation mm. where it's yeah. obviously important. Um, I care about this, even in situations where I probably shouldn't, uh, why aren't you willing to put in sort of like this bare minimum of effort? Um, yeah, I definitely share that with you on in in some domains. What about um what about IFS internal family systems? Uh, yeah. Could you expound so, on that a bit? Yeah, so internal family systems is similar in many ways to Jungian stuff. It's the idea that you are comprised of uh parts where it's essentially if you if you sort of listen to people talking colloquially, they uh, when they're internally conflicted, they'll say something, say something like, part of me believes that, I don't know, 
um, you don't want to spend time with me. Or part of me, part of me believes that I should be doing something else with my, my life. And the idea of internal, internal family systems is to basically take that seriously and essentially have a conversation with that part. Um, and it's sort of, it's an extension to focusing. It's, um, it's a way of getting a little bit of distance from the part of you that believes some particular thing and saying, okay, so what's up? Like, um, like why, why do you feel like that way? Well, how, how can I help? What's going on? Um, and internal family systems has this particular ontology of parts, um, category, categorization of parts where, uh, it says that, um, there are, I've encountered multiple different ontologies is for this. Like the one I learned is simpler than the, the one that is standard, um, uh, which is that you have exiles and you have defenders. Um, the, uh, there's also like a three part version, which says you have exiles, you have managers and you have firefighters. And I never remember like the split here. Um, but sort of the, the relevant thing for this is that an exile is, um, it's in some way like hurt or it's a tra it's like a younger traumatized version of yourself usually that is afraid of the world and doesn't want to be let out and do it um and a defender is sort of standing in between it and the world it's internal family systems is about basically identifying an exile identifying the defender that is that's protecting it asking the defender to essentially just step out of the way for a little bit and let you have a conversation with the exile. Um, and then essentially offering love and compassion and curiosity to the exile, basically trying to be the ideal compassionate parent figure that uh, the exile needed to progress past the point where it got stuck um yeah and i'm and i'm not sure that's how an internal family systems pr practitioner would explain it to you but but, that's but, what... but I, I really like it that you're bringing your own version you know possibly not based on the material <laughs> sources but this is this is all we what we do and your own version is is, is still legitimate if it's working for mm -hmm. you so that's good and now what was the uh, the third the, thir um, the third one was, was coherence therapy. Yeah. Um, and coherence therapy is, um, it's, so I described internal family systems as um, what happens when you start taking the question, like part of me believes, uh, believes seriously. Um, and coherence therapy is sort of like when you do the same, but you put the emphasis on belief rather than part. Um, it's, uh, it's, it starts with the idea that emotional reactions are, uh, represent beliefs. It is a belief that this is the correct emotional reaction to be having right now. Um, some, um, you get angry, it's because, uh, at some level or in some way you believe that the correct thing to do is to be angry right now or afraid or one of it, one of various other emotions and so what you and you have this belief because it was in some at some point in your life useful to have this belief and what you do it, and and so the thing you do in coherence therapy 
is you go, okay, I believe this right now. Why do I believe this? And is that correct? And again, this is now somewhat idiosyncratic framing of it, but my the way I look at this is that you have to go into this with the attitude of um, it might be correct. It's uh, if I am angry for good reasons, then I will act on that anger. I won't do that necessarily by being sort of shouty and aggressive, but I will in some in some way like act on the belief that um, that is be- that I currently possess. And if it doesn't feel correct, this is the coherence therapy bit. What I do, it, what you do is you essentially go, okay, this was a reasonable belief in the context in which it was learned. Uh, it might not have been a correct belief. Like one of the things that comes up a lot of the time is that this was a learned strategy back when you were a small child and small children are kind of dumb and not very good at strategy. So it may be that like even at the time there was clearly a better thing for you to be doing, but you were not capable of finding that better thing. Um and so one of the things that you can point out to the belief is I'm an adult now, I'm smarter, I have better strategies available to me, let's do this instead. Um, but it might also be I'm an adult now, I'm no longer forced to go into school like by a legal mandate or I no longer have to deal with that particular authority figure who I learned this in response to. And essentially treating yourself as not bad for having this belief but highlighting and like really internalizing the things that are different about the situation that you are currently experiencing from the situation in which it made sense to have this belief. And um, I no longer use this frame, but it was really useful to me when sort of initially de- developing it, which is um, – there's a distinction from a philosopher whose name I can never remember um, of a leafs and beliefs. Um, uh, a a, a belief is uh, something you think, an a leaf is something you feel. So essentially, um, if you if you know something is true but it doesn't feel true, or oh, then that's a conflict between your a leafs and your beliefs. Mm. And so I sometimes think of coherence therapy as the practice of trying to make sure, trying to have the same A-leafs and B-leafs. Um, um, oh, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, yeah and, so, and importantly, like sometimes that changes the, the, the B-leafs and sometimes that changes the A-leafs. Um, yeah, that's interesting. And I'm, as you uh, mentioned all of them, I'm trying to abstract the thing that's present in all of them. And I think all of them are trying to, first of all, employ reason mm-hmm. um, to, to, a good, to a good end. And then also, you can see very clearly that they're about making peace, right? Mm-hmm. With yourself internally and then harmonizing things outside of you in nature, right? Nature mm-hmm. being everything, including other people. Yeah. And that is, uh, first of all, shares this thing with dialectic, which is, um, which is what I do, the art of, of just creating a good representation of the, of the world with concepts in your mind. So, mm-hmm. so that when you apply this model that you have, you get good results because this model is accurate and true mm-hmm. and not haphazardly put 
because like you say, we grow up as children. We do all sorts of stuff. And sometimes we just, we get stuck in a rut that there's really no reason to be stuck in. Um, and that's where it really uh, resonates with, with living well, which is not a state, but a mode of sustainable harmony. Uh, and you mm-hmm. could also call it health for all purposes, mm-hmm. because health in the body is just this ability to be in homeostasis over time and be as capable as you can be, right? Uh, partly mm-hmm. also to, um, to, uh, to, to repeat the process and, and keep yourself healthy. And that's what we want to do with our soul. We want to be in a place where it's healthy enough so that it does what it is good uh, for itself. And that is, uh, that is what I'm abstracting from all the techniques which you've just shared. And I'm wondering now, um, you know, when things are starting to get better for you then with the insights you're gaining, how does it feel subjectively in terms of uh, conducting yourself in the world? Um, that's a good question. I think one of the clearest subjective changes is a significant reduction in anxiety. Um, it's, uh, like I used to have a lot of, uh, social anxiety, for example, and in an example of really, really poor timing, I fixed this right at the beginning of 2020. Uh, um, um, but uh, and, and there are other anxiety triggers that I definitely haven't fixed yet. Um, I, I still get anxiety over paperwork, for example, which I, um, is sufficiently entrenched that I haven't quite managed to get to the bottom of that one. Um, but, but in general, like the biggest objective change is sort of constant incremental expansion of the situations in which I can act without being anxious. Um, and anxious, what, uh, how does that feel? What are you describing there? Is it um, just the being uh, an- anticipating something bad happening or, or being um, too, too caught up in your own mind that uh, you're missing, missing the moment? Of, or? Uh, it's anxiety isn't a mind thing for me. Um, it's, uh, it does sometimes result in like unproductive overthinking loops, but like my experience of anxiety is primarily physical. Like it's like, it's a whole body flinch reaction. Mm. Um, uh, a distinction I often use is, um, that anxiety is not actually the same as worry. Um, and it's not being, and so I, I describe like worry as being afraid of a specific bad outcome while as Anxiety is more like discomfort with the range of the space of possible outcomes. Um, it's a discomfort with uncertainty is how I, how I'd often frame it. Um, and so it's, it's more like a negative reaction to having to navigate the space of possibilities at all. So like you go to a party and you have social anxiety because you're just like, oh God, who do I talk to? What do I do? What is like, like I, I, there is an infinite space of things you could do in this context and uh, you don't know what the right one is. You don't know how to 
that's amazing i mean the the framing of of anxiety is a whole body flinch is something i'm definitely going to um to snatch from you and and carry (laughs) forward and use in future conversations and also you can see that logically of course we understand that um if we are in a different mindset we can be excited and happy about having many possibilities right Mm -hmm. so you can imagine yourself being exhilarated by a lot of good possibilities out there mm-hmm. but anxiety is just approaching things from yeah uh, a battle already lost kind of mindset mm-hmm. maybe or yeah um, yeah so that's really interesting mm-hmm. yeah and i think it often comes so anxiety and depression i think are, th- are thought of as like different things but if you sort of look at people who experience one or the other they're very tightly tied together um, and I think this sort of ties way back into what you were talking about of depression as overwhelm and sort of um, not not knowing what to do next. And I think this is in, in many ways like why they're so tightly tied together. It's like depression is not knowing what to do next. Anxiety is being overwhelmed by the space of possibility or being afraid of the space of possibilities of what to do next. Um, and so anxiety i think will naturally lead to depression in that way yeah that that makes sense to me as well um yeah so in terms in terms of walking out in the world without this anxiety now that you've obtained some or mastered some techniques to to help um well long term um yeah i'm gonna ask a slightly leading question would the concept of of flow um describe describe any of the of the being in like post anxiety um i understand why you're asking the question this is not but i should i should say it's not flow well what i'm thinking in my mind being um being thinking in greek sometimes is euroia mm-hmm. so euroia or eroia is the stoic concept of good flow literally it means good mm-hmm. flow but it's not the flow of of being um very very productive and accurate in your actions within mm-hmm. a framework uh, within a frame of like an hour or two it's about mm-hmm. long term just feeling in general more in harmony with the world so that's kind of what i'm getting at yeah i think um the the thing that i think that the thing that i think that is missing and why flow still doesn't feel quite right to me and maybe this is a difference in our um our usage to some degree is that a reduction in anxiety gets you out of your own way, but it doesn't come with a sense of purpose. It doesn't come with a like you can you can get rid of anxiety by basically going, okay, I can do whatever I want. It doesn't matter. Um, uh, like every choice is a good choice, but without some sort of positive principle to mm. on on which to make choices um what what you have is drift not flow 
Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, I love it. That yeah, that's that's a that's a really good point and building that positive thing to to work for I think is where um really again dialectic comes in but really thinking about what you're trying to achieve and understanding mm-hmm. that what you're doing is good for something and starting to look at your life from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm doing yeah. this it's good for that which is good for that thing which is good <coughs> for that thing. Mm-hmm. And all the good fours are added into this great big chain. So each one is a link. Each action is a link. But where does it all lead us? And mm-hmm. I think ultimately the answer should be uh, doing well or or living well, uh, well-being, mm-hmm. mental health. It can be framed uh, separate um, ways. But yeah, so is that is that where you'd like to uh, kind of, or is that where you would define an end to, to that uh, chapter where getting rid of depression and anxiety, um, or did you develop some things that relate to, to the next stage of what actually to do? I'm still working on that bit. If I'm honest, uh, it's, um, a, partly because I haven't currently fixed the depression and anxiety part like as much as I would like to, and partly because uh, I end up with a big question mark, question mark, question mark every time I try and figure out this step. Um, and I think that some of the reason why is that I've made all this progress during the worst possible time to make progress on this particular problem. Because I think that uh, positive purpose requires other people in a way that it's not impossible to do during the pandemic. But um, I think that it's very hard. And um, I I think of a lot of these things as skill development. And one of the sort of key features of skill development is that you should always be trying to do things that are slightly outside of your comfort zone. Um, And if you do things that are only within your comfort zone, then you don't get better because you already know how to do those things. But also if you do things that are um, vastly outside your comfort zone, you also don't get better because like you just fail completely and you have no ability to get positive feedback on like what you did well and what you did badly. Um, If if you're trying to learn to play piano, um, then you don't sit down and immediately start trying to play uh, an elaborate Mozart concerto or whatever um, because uh, what will happen is you'll just make a mess. Um, You don't uh, you, we talk about throwing people at the deep end and letting them learn to swim, but no, that's how you that's how you get people to drown. Yeah, um, you you start people in the shallows, you sort of get them comfortable with the water. And I think one of the problems I'm having right now is that the pandemic creates a higher activation for everything, a higher activation energy for everything, and as a result, clears out a lot of the immediate periphery of my comfort zone. Um, it's, there are loads of obvious next steps and all of them are made somewhat inaccessible or somewhat, or significantly higher anxiety and anxiety of a form where 
I can't fix the anxiety because the anxiety is actually a rational response to the situation. Um, it's um, in much the same way that sometimes it's right to be angry, sometimes it's right to be fearful, sometimes it's right to be anxious because uh, if I'm organizing a group event, there's genuinely a lot of negative uncertainty there. I need to know. I need to take do a huge amount of risk planning. Um, so, so yeah, I, uh, and, and and a lot of this feels like excuses, but I think I think is sort of a mix of true and excuses. Um, but, um, but yeah, positive purpose is sort of my my next step and what I'm still working on out out is I guess the short answer to that. Nice. So yeah, first of all, thank you so much for being so candid and open throughout this. And I don't take it for granted that you're able to um, tell the truth as it is. Um, I really wish for all of us to come out of this pandemic already and mm-hmm. and get to do the, the positive things. I will say to anybody listening that to me, a lot of the next step of, of what to actually aim for starts with a with the question of what mental health is um and not in the sense that you can go to the dsm-5 and look at all the um, recognized illnesses you know that are just so obvious and so uh, glaring that okay you can say this person has some sort of of syndrome let's be skeptical about all of us here, even if we don't have anxiety, even if we don't have depression in ways that are um, recognizable, maybe we're not completely healthy. Maybe maybe being healthy is something a bit over that. And this is eventually what we want to do. We want to be healthy physically if possible, and we definitely want to be healthy uh, mentally if possible. And I think it also is related to all the the practices that you mentioned that are all about making peace within um, oneself. Yeah, David, thank you so much for taking the time. I'd like you to uh, share with the listeners any venues that they can find you writing in, thinking in, and so on. Um, Yeah, thank you very much for having me. So in terms of places to find me thinking and writing in, um, there are basically three places. There's, um, in in order of sort of increasing level of well-formedness of thought. There is me on Twitter as Dr. McKeever. Uh, there is my notebook blog, which is for long-form writing that is sort of first draft quality. It's like off-the-cuff thoughts. Um, that's at notebook.drmckeever.com. And for the most polished of my writing currently, there is my newsletter uh, titled Overthinking Everything, um, uh, which is drmckeever.substack.com. And Rather than having to spell this, I assume there will be links in the description. Yes, there will be. And I can say personally that I recommend it. I love your writing and and the, the clarity of it and also the depth that you um, go to in um, analyzing different subjects. Uh, yeah, so thanks again, David. And I'll be happy to do a follow-up when the pandemic is over and see if we all made it out okay. Sounds great. Uh, thank you very much, Ayon.